The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. I'd like to ask that you turn in your Bibles to Revelation 10 to continue our study in the book of Revelation. The word revelation means unveiling, and it pulls the veil back between the physical and spiritual world as no other book of the Bible does. That veil is pulled back, and as we peer into the invisible spiritual world, we can see more things than we could have conceived with our unaided imaginations. Certainly the most significant invisible reality we see by the book of Revelation is the glory of the triune God. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. God the Father, seated on a throne of eternal glory. God the Son, Jesus Christ, pictured as a lion and as a lamb. Or as a high priest walking among seven golden lampstands. And God the Spirit, pictured as a sevenfold light, blazing, shining. A lampstand with the fire of holiness. So no book in the Bible so powerfully reveals the hidden nature of the triune God as Revelation. But that's not all the book of Revelation unveils about the invisible spiritual realms. For there are awesome created beings that we would never have known about or we wouldn't know what they're like if it weren't for this book of Revelation. And that includes beings we commonly call angels. Today we're going to have an encounter through the text with an angel that I believe still lives, is every bit as glorious, is every bit as powerful right now as he was 2,000 years ago. And that encountered the Apostle John and gave him a commission. This encounter will give us a broader sense of the universe in which we really live. Things that we didn't know were around us at every moment. Invisible realms around us. And it's going to give us a better ability to live for the glory of God in this physical world. So let's set context. It's been a little while since I've been able to unfold Revelation to you. The Apostle John wrote the book of Revelation. He was the human instrument for this book. He was in exile on the island of Patmos for the testimony of Jesus. Patmos is a tiny, rocky, deserted island off the coast of modern-day Turkey. And on that tiny, rocky, barren, deserted island, the Apostle John had a revelation of Jesus Christ. It was communicated to him by Christ. He heard a voice, the voice of Christ, and he saw a door standing open in the heavenly realms. And Christ called on him to ascend from earth and to go through that doorway into the heavenly realms. And he was empowered by the Spirit to do that. And he was promised that if he did, he would be told things about the future. I will show you things that must take place after this. And as he went through that doorway, the first thing he saw was a throne in heaven with someone seated on it. As I've said before, and I'll say again, that throne, the throne of Almighty God is the central reality of the universe. It's the most important thing there is in the universe. And so that throne, showing the glory of God, he is seated there, and he's celebrated there in Revelation 4 as the glorious creator of the universe, of all things, visible and invisible. And he's worshipped there by 24 elders seated on their thrones, and by the four living creatures, and by a hundred million angels. Revelation 4 celebrated God the Creator. And in the right hand of God as he sits on this throne is a scroll sealed with seven seals. And a mighty angel calls out who is worthy to take the scroll and open the seals. And no one is found worthy 
until Jesus Christ comes up. He is portrayed as the lion of the tribe of Judah, also portrayed as a lamb looking as if it had been slain. And he takes the, the scroll from the right hand of him who sits on the throne. And when he does, there's, there's just cascading worship that happens in heaven of God the Redeemer, of Christ the Redeemer, who by his blood, one, purchased people for God from every tribe, language, people, and nation. And he began in Revelation 6, he began breaking open the seals. And as he does, judgments start coming on the earth. The four horsemen of the apocalypse ride on the surface of the earth and bring judgments and suffering. And we see martyrs, we see people who have been slaughtered for the testimony of Christ, crying out for justice and vengeance. And we see with the breaking open of the sixth seal, basically the end of the physical universe as we know it. The sun, the moon, the stars falling. Every mountain and island removed from its place. And at the end of that breaking of the sixth seal, we have a, a question that goes out. As the inhabitants of the earth are running, they're fleeing from the wrath of God, and they're looking for a refuge. And they're crying to the mountains and to the hills, fall on us and cover us from the wrath of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who shall be able to stand? It's an incredible question, something that we need to heed now. Where is there going to be a refuge from the wrath of God. And then Revelation 7 seems to give the answer to that question. The refuge is Christ. And those that flee to Christ, those that are sealed from the 12 tribes of Israel, 144,000 from each of the tribes of Israel, and then this multitude greater than anyone could count from every tribe, language, people, and nation, they seem to be the answer to the question, who shall be able to stand? We who are sinners will be able to be redeemed, will be, will be saved by the shed blood of Christ, and will be able to stand there fully forgiven in white robes, celebrating the salvation that God alone could give, Revelation 7. But then the Lamb breaks open as Revelation 8 begins, the seventh seal. And from the seventh seal comes seven trumpets. It's, a, it's almost like the seventh seal is the seven trumpets, and they start to flow. And these trumpets bring a level of suffering and judgment on earth such as we can scarcely imagine. And it's depicted for us in Revelation 8 and 9. The first four trumpets in Revelation 8, terrifying judgments on the ecology of the earth, on the green vegetation, all the green grass, the trees, a third of the trees, etc. And all the green things. And then on the oceans, turning a third of them into blood and killing a third of all the aquatic creatures in the ocean. And then a, a third of the fresh waters turned to poison so that people cannot drink the fresh water. And then in Revelation, uh, and then a, a judgment on the sun and the moon and the stars so that a third of them are struck. And so you have a reduction of, of the light. And then in Revelation 9, the fifth and sixth trumpets, a demonic horde unleashed, billowing from the, the nether regions, it seems, coming up as out of a shaft from deep in the earth, a demonic assault on the human race likened to a plague of locusts or the attack of scorpions. And people are in agony for five months and crying out for death, but death will elude them. And then an invasion, it seems, of a demonic army, either of humans incited by demons or actual demons, 200 uh, million strong, and they are bringing death to one-third of the population of the earth. So that brings us now to Revelation 10. And we come in Revelation 10 really to a pause in the action, a dramatic pause before the seventh trumpet sounds. Similar to Revelation 7 being a pause between the sixth and seventh seal. And so we have a bit of a pause. And as you're reading through, you get the feeling that we need a break. It's so overwhelming in Revelation 8 and 9 that we just get a bit of a respite. And that's what Revelation 10 is. A vision of a mighty angel 
and a little scroll and the recommissioning of the prophet John to speak future words of sweetness and bitterness that we desperately need to hear and eat. Connecting with what, God willing, I'll preach next week about the two witnesses, uh, we have in Revelation 10 the timeless witness of the word of God through John, angel giving the message to John and John writing it down and testifying, and then the temporal witness of the two witnesses in space and time proclaiming the truth of God. And so that's the combination of the truth flowing from God through the scripture and then through actual human witnesses to the generations that need to hear it. So God willing, we'll talk about that next week. So we begin looking now at Revelation uh, chapter 10 verses 1 through 4 with a description of this mighty angel. And before we do that, let's just stop and just say a few words about angels. What is an angel? The word angel is just a transliteration of the Greek word for messenger. Messenger. An angelos in Greek is a messenger, somebody who comes with a message from God. But they do more than just bring messages. Angels are created spiritual beings. They are different from human beings in that they have no body. They have no physical uh, existence. So they have no birth, they do not age, and they do not die. They have no flesh and blood. They're spirits. And there are good angels that serve God. And there are wicked angels called demons that serve their king, Satan. Now, angels are active throughout the Old Testament. I'm not going to say how, but they're there at many places. But their activity is greatly enhanced and focused on in the New Testament. It's even clearer and more dramatic. For example, angels were there at the birth of Christ at Bethlehem. Remember, the shepherds were there outside the city of Bethlehem. They were watching their sheep at night. And an angel of the Lord appeared, and the glory of the Lord shone around, and the, angel, and the shepherds were terrified. And he bring, bring the message at that point of the birth of Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world. Today there is born for you in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And then suddenly with the angels, this huge army of angels comes, praising God, glorifying Him, and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to those on whom God's favor rests. So angels were there at the beginning of Christ's earthly life, and then they were there at the end. Because the angels came down uh, at the tomb where Jesus had been buried, and this one angel, his appearance was so overwhelming, his appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were as white as light. And the guards, the Roman guards who were guarding Jesus' tomb were so terrified of him that they shook and became like dead men. And this one angel rolls back this mighty boulder and just sits on it. I don't know if you could picture angelic legs just kind of hanging over. And he's just sitting there on the rock. And the guards are out of the picture. But he says to the women that are there to finish the burial rites of Jesus, why are you looking for the dead or the living among the dead? He is not here. He is risen. And so angels are there at the beginning and then the end of Christ's life. And even more right at the very end as Jesus ascends to heaven. And his apostles are there watching him go as he goes higher and higher up into the clouds. And they're just standing there. And God dispatches an angel to say, okay, go back now into Jerusalem. Wait in the upper room for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit as the Lord has told you. This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you've seen him go into heaven. And so we see angels throughout in the ministry of the New Testament and throughout the book of Acts and other places as well. Hebrews 1.14 says, Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? So they're here serving us in many invisible ways, ways we cannot understand. Now what are the benefits of studying angels in Scripture? First of all, I am a verse-by-verse expositor. I try to preach the main idea from a text being uh, the main point of the sermon. Angels are hardly ever 
the main point of any sermon text except today. So we have the opportunity to zero in on angels and try to understand. Why should we study angels? Why should we try to understand them? Well, first, we should know how protected we are by angelic warriors. That angels fight for us and do things for us in ways we can hardly imagine, ways we do not see. And we need to be aware of that. Secondly, it helps us in that we know more of the complexity of the true universe, both the spiritual and the physical in which we live. And that these beings were created by God, that God wanted them to exist, and that they in some marvelous ways glorify God. And we should be joyful about that. Thirdly, we study angels so that we can imitate their obedience to God. It says in the Lord's Prayer, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. May your kingdom come and may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Well, who does God's will in heaven but the angels? And so for us to study their promptness of obedience and their eagerness and zeal to obey everything that God tells them to do, their willingness to serve in every way, they are role models for us in, in serving God. However, there are dangers in studying angels as well. We human beings are constantly drawn after created beings and we are idolatrous. I actually believe every false religion and every cult in the world has had evil angels behind them. Supernatural forces that have set up those false religions. So it's dangerous to focus too much on angels and supernatural beings. I'm always fascinated by artistic renditions of angels too. There are lots of different ones. Like you can picture like the fat little baby in a diaper with bow and arrow. I don't know where that comes from at all. Or then, you know, in popular culture now, you, you've got beautiful women with long hair. Like if you go get an angel ornament for your tree, it's going to be probably looking like that. Even from some Christian, you know, bookstores. But angels in the Bible uh, are, are pictured generally, if they're, if they're given any kind of human form, they're pictured as young men and warrior types like in our chapter today. So it's best not to use our imaginations to draw artistic renditions of what angels look like. So if that's causing you to rethink some of your ornaments now, that's between you and God. <laughs> angels are supernatural beings. They're often depicted as surrounded with awesome displays of supernatural light. Therefore, people are tempted to worship them. Even John, the Apostle John, would, would be tempted twice at the end of the book of Revelation to fall down and worship an angel that was interacting with him. And he said, don't do it. I'm a servant of God just like you are. Worship God. Paul specifically warned against the worship of angels in Colossians 2.18. Satan and his demons take advantage of this human tendency to worship angels. And he has said in 2 Corinthians 11.14 to masquerade as an angel of light. I think a lot of the new age mysticism of people that are they're beyond atheism, they're actually looking for spiritual experiences, are encountering uh, supernatural experiences with fallen angels, with demons. So people can focus too much on angels and forget they're only created beings, they're servants just like us, as the angel told us. And to spend a huge amount of time thinking about angels is misplaced focus. Now, how are angels especially active in the book of Revelation? Well, 73 of the 188 references to angels in the New Testament are in the book of Revelation. So they're depicted as extremely active in this book. Since Revelation is all about the unveiling of the invisible spiritual realms of the future, it's not uh, surprising that angels figure so prominently. Angels are depicted around the throne of God and their home base is there worshiping God. 
They delight in the worship of God. But they're also active in unleashing wrath on planet Earth. One angel in Revelation 8 took live coals from the altar of God, put it in a golden censer, and hurled it on the earth. Revelation 8 and 9, angels sound the seven trumpets, bringing the terrifying judgments on earth. Revelation 12, which we'll get to, God willing, in a couple weeks, we'll see the battle between good angels and evil angels in the heavenly realms, and the ultimate king of the evil angels, Satan. Revelation 16 shows the angels pouring out the bowls uh, of God's wrath on the earth and actually celebrating the justice of God in, for example, turning water into blood because they shed the blood of God's servants and so God has given them blood to drink as they deserve. They actually are celebrating this. You're right for doing this. They delight in this because it's a display of the justice of God. And so they're actively involved in the unfolding events of the book of Revelation. Perhaps the most important role, however, of these heavenly messengers is bringing the word of God from God to prophets and apostles to communicate to us. Angels are active as mediators of that message frequently. Not in every case, but often we see angels basically carrying messages from God to prophets. We get that right in the book we're studying here, Revelation chapter 1. It says, a revelation of Jesus Christ which God, the Father, gave him, Jesus, to, ma- to let his servants know what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John. So the angel was in between Jesus and John, bringing the book of Revelation. We learn in the New Testament, we didn't know it from just reading the Old Testament, but that the law of Moses was mediated through angels. It was by angels that Moses heard the entire law. Angels often carry messages uh, from God to the prophets. Probably the clearest parallel to Revelation 10 is Daniel chapter 10. And don't turn there now, but maybe later today, go and read that awesome chapter. In Daniel 10, Daniel is seeking insight and wisdom from God about the future of the Jewish nation. He's praying and fasting and seeking God. And God dispatches an angel to bring him the answer. And in Daniel chapter 5, verse, Daniel 10, verse 5 through 8, it says, I looked up and there before me was a man dressed in linen with a belt of the finest gold around his waist. And his body was like chrysolite. His face was like lightning. His eyes were like flaming torches. His arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze. And his voice like the sound of a multitude. It's an awesome display of an angel. I, Daniel, was the only one who saw the vision. The men with me did not see it, but such terror overwhelmed them that they fled and hid themselves. So I was left alone, gazing at this great vision. I had no strength left. My face turned deathly pale, and I was helpless. Well, this angel in Daniel 10 was dispatched by God and answered Daniel's prayer for wisdom about the future. He says in Daniel 10, 14, Now I have come to explain to you what will happen to your people in the future, for the vision concerns a time yet to come. So the angel's job was to bring an answer to the prophet about the future. So honestly, that angel had the same function in Daniel 10 that this angel has in Revelation 10. To bring God's word to a a, a man, a prophet, to proclaim it to the whole world. But that, that angel's appearance in Daniel 10 was so overpowering that Daniel was knocked to the ground. In Daniel 10, 16 and 17, he says to the angel, I said to the one standing before me, I am overcome with anguish 
because of the vision, my Lord, and I am helpless. How can I, your servant, talk with you, my Lord? My strength is gone and I can hardly breathe. So he's just so overwhelmed by the presence of this glorious being that he can't even breathe. He's on the ground. So this should give us some sense of the overpowering strength and might of the angels of God. And so also this one in Revelation 10. So look how he's described in our chapter. Look at uh, chapter 10, verse 1 through 3. Revelation 10. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven. He was robed in a cloud with a rainbow above his head. And his face was like the sun. And his legs were like fiery pillars. He was holding a little scroll which lay open in his hand. And he planted his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. And he gave a loud shout like the roar of a lion. So he is described as another mighty angel. In other words, he's like some of the other angels that uh, John has already seen in his vision. John describes him as mighty, a sense that he is a warrior. He is powerful, ready to fight. He's strong. He's able to do anything God would tell him to do. And he is depicted as coming down from heaven to earth. So that means that John is now kind of back on earth. Remember how he had ascended and went through that doorway and you've got all these visions. Now it seems like there's a reset and he's on, he's on earth and the angel comes down to where he is. And he's come down from heaven to earth to bring a message to John. He is robed in a cloud, it says. Often in the Bible, clouds represent judgment from God. Like in Psalm 18, God is depicted as coming with the clouds of heaven and wrath is coming out of the cloud. So there's a sense of that. Gathering clouds represent the unleashing of a storm of God's wrath, often in Scripture. Yet there is also a rainbow above the head of the angel. This, of course, harkens back to Noah's flood and the rainbow being a sign of the covenant that God made never again to destroy the world uh, by a flood. And so we remember the words, in wrath remember mercy. And so with all of this display of wrath, there's still a sign of the mercy of God. Now the angel's face was like the sun. He's shining with radiance, like the angel of the night that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Shining with the radiance of God. And so he's shining, brilliant, heavenly light. And his legs are said to be like fiery pillars. This, of course, makes us think about the pillar of fire, or the pillar of cloud, that led the Israelites, especially at night, the pillar of fire. And how is that pillar of, of fire that kept the, uh, the uh, Egyptian army with all of its power and chariots away from the people of God and protected them? And then led them in, through the dark path through the Red Sea. Such a picture of death and then resurrection on the other side when the sun came up. And so they move across the Red Sea, out, and then back up like a picture of death and, and then resurrection. But here's this fiery pillar that gives the, the light that they need to make it through the Red Sea. These pillars of fire are the angel's legs. And he's holding a little scroll which lay open in his hand. The scroll really is the point of this whole vision. It's the focus of the vision. It's the point of the, of the angel coming from heaven to earth. Is the scroll that he's holding. It's called little based on the, the Greek word for it. It's got a little uh, twist, the, the word for scroll. So it's a little scroll. Perhaps the scroll looks little compared to the massive size of the angel. Which is a massively huge being and the scroll looks small. But of the two, amazingly, the scroll is going to have a bigger impact on redemptive history than the mighty angel. That's the power of the word of God. Power. It's like, like comparing a tiny little acorn to a, a vast forest of oak trees that would come from that acorn. Though it looks small initially, it's going to have a massive impact, this little scroll. 
And it lay open in the angel's hand. So it's not sealed, it's open. It can be read. People have concluded this might be the scroll that was sealed with seven seals. But I don't know that we can certainly connect the two. It's just a scroll, and on it, writing from God, and it lays open so that John can read it. And what this shows is God's willingness to reveal things to us. He's got some things to show us, to tell us. Daniel was told to seal several of his visions for the future. Their meanings were hidden and would be hidden until then. Now, this is a very important idea I want to give you. The book of Revelation is written in difficult language. It's hard to interpret, and there are many different ways to interpret it. God intended it that way. He could have written more clearly if he chose to. He intended to write a message that would be immediately relevant for 20 centuries of church history, but then especially in detail relevant for the final generation. It's amazing how he does both. So that every generation, not knowing whether they're the final generation, can read it. But there are yet future things, details that have yet to be revealed. And that's going to come out right here in this chapter. So the idea of the scroll laying open is that which God is willing to reveal to us right now. Daniel is told, for example, in Daniel 12.4, Daniel, close up and seal the words of the scroll until the time of the end. For the words can uh, uh, refer to a distant future. So Daniel searched and didn't understand the meaning, and he was told it wasn't for you. It's not for you. It's for a distant generation. Now, in this open scroll lays the revelation of mysteries that God is intending to grant now to his people. But there are some future insights that are only going to come at the end of the world. So look at verse 7. It says, In the days when the seventh angel is about to sound his trumpet, the mystery of God will be accomplished just as he announced to his servants the prophets. So I'm going to get more into that in a moment. But in those days, God's going to reveal more. Now, if you ask, how is he going to reveal more? He's not going to give us a 67th book of the Bible. That's not what's going to happen. He's going to speak by current events that line up with the language of Scripture. That's how it's going to happen. And it will not be clear to us until we, if, unless we are the generation, that final generation, living through it. As Jesus said, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel, then you should do this. So when you see this current event happen, then you'll know that Daniel has been fulfilled. Then you run for your life. So we'll get into all that, but this is a sequence that God is revealing some things to us now and some things not yet. Now, beyond the scroll, the angel takes a mighty stance on the surface of the earth. Look at verse 2 and 3. He planted his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land, and he gave a loud shout like the roar of a lion. So this is the stance is one of a mighty warrior. He cannot be moved from his positions, like taking his stand on the battlefield. And he plants one foot on the dry land, And one foot into the sea. Now John actually tells us which foot is where. He tells us the right foot is in the sea and the left foot is in the land. Now if you were to say, Pastor, why does he designate that? I will tell you, I have no idea. As usual, every week I invite people to come and give me their opinion. And that's all it's going to be. Why the right foot here and the left foot there? Why does he tell us? Why does it matter? I don't know, but he tells us. In any case, though, this stance gives us a sense of the awesome power of the angel, but also, I think even more, that the message he comes to bring encompasses every realm that God made. 
It's going to affect all the creatures in the heavens. For the angel's head reaches up to the clouds and his face is like the sun. It's going to affect the earth because his left foot is there. It's going to affect the sea because his right foot is there. The word of God laying open in his hand, small that it may seem, is going to have a huge impact on all those realms. As it says in Psalm 33, 6, By the word of the Lord were the heavens made, and their starry host by the breath of his mouth. And again, as Jesus said in Matthew 24, 35, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. And the angel's voice is likened to the roar of a lion. Often when God brings his message, like at Mount Sinai, he gives overwhelming light and terrifying sound. So there's a sense of radiant light and loud sound. So that we take it seriously. We take the message of God seriously. Now in verse 3 and 4, we have the seven thunders. He gave a loud shout like the uh, roar of a lion. And when he shouted, the voices of the seven thunders spoke. And when the seven thunders spoke, I was about to write... But I heard a voice from heaven say, seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. Now we don't know what the seven thunders are. And we don't know what the seven thunders said. Obviously they said intelligible things that John understood and could have written down. Or he wouldn't need to be forbidden from writing them down. So there's actually information there. But they're sealed up. He's not allowed to reveal them. That refers to what I was just saying a moment ago. Things that we could know, but God doesn't want us to know yet. Now you may ask, why doesn't he want us to know them yet? I think it's because it would affect the actual flow of events in ways God doesn't want to. Let me give you an example of that. You remember how Jacob thought his son Joseph was ripped to shreds by wild animals? Remember? Because his brothers who had sold him into slavery brought back his colored robe with blood on it, remember? And for many years, Jacob was under the, under the uh, misunderstanding that his, first, his, his son uh, from Rachel, his firstborn from Rachel, was dead. But he wasn't dead. Could God have revealed to him that his son is actually alive and is flourishing now as the second in command in Egypt. Oh, yes, he could have, but J Jacob would have gone early, perhaps even before he got to that position and bought him out of slavery from Potiphar. And so he just had to wait until God was ready to reveal that his son Joseph was alive in Egypt, which he eventually did. And so there's just some things it's not best for us to know now, but they are knowable. God could tell them to us, but he doesn't want us to know them yet. And so he is forbidden. Uh, John from writing them down. Deuteronomy 29, 29, it says, The secret things belong to the Lord, but the things revealed belong to us and to our children forever. So the division in our text would be the, the secret hidden things are the seven thunders, right? And the things revealed is the open scroll. So there's a division of what God could tell us about the future. Those things we do definitely know that's coming and those things that we don't yet know. So to sum up, the angel is awesome, he's glorious, he's mighty and massive. He comes to bring an open scroll revealing secrets and mysteries through John to planet earth. Every nation and language and king will hear about these things concerning the end of the world, which he will finally reveal first through the rest of the book of Revelation to us, and then second through the unfolding events of history in the future. All right, so what is the message from the angel? Well, the angel takes a, an oath stance to some degree. And he gives a solemn oath. Look at verse 5 and 6. Then the angel I had seen standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven. 
And he swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created the heavens and all that is in them, the earth and all that is in it, and the sea and all that is in it, and said, there will be no more delay. So the angel takes this oath stance with his right hand and his left hand, as we've noted, he, uh, right foot, left foot, as we've noted, sorry, and then he raises his right hand up to heaven and takes an oath. And the taking of the oath, we're told in the book of Hebrews, is to give us a sense of certainty about what he's talking about. That's the purpose of the oath. And he swears by the eternal God, the God who lives forever and ever, whose kingdom never changes. He swears by the creator God, the king of all creation. The text looks at all the spheres of creation, of heaven and earth and sea, and extends to all the creatures that go in those spheres. It extends to everything. The God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea, the eternal king, by that God, I swear. Okay, what do you swear? Well, here's what I'm swearing to you. There'll be no more delay. It has to do with delay. The unfolding of the plan of God seems to take forever. When will this happen? We always want to know that. When, when, when? When is this going to happen? Some of you may think it's going to start tomorrow. Be careful looking at the eclipse. Do not burn your eyes. Read some safety things about this. Your sunglasses are not enough. I was looking at that strip, that polarized strip above my windshield, and I had my sunglasses on just doing a trial run on the sun yesterday. Don't do it. The problem is tomorrow the sun's going to be really, really interesting. Danger, danger. Look it up. It's a dangerous thing. I would suggest you watch videos of it. (laughs) That might be safer. But we're always asking, how long? When will all these things come about? In Daniel 12, an angel actually asked it. One of them, one of the angels, said to the man clothed in linen who was floating above the waters of the river, how long will it be before these astonishing things are fulfilled? We are always want to know the time aspect. The martyrs under the altar were asking this. How long until we're avenged? How long, O Lord? But there will come a time in human history when things will rapidly come to an end. Rapidly come to an end. Remember where we're at in the book of Revelation. This is between the sixth and seventh trumpet. Think of the things that have already happened to planet Earth. The ecology being so damaged. And the the demonic armies bringing suffering and torture and killing a third of humanity. When those terrifying things, when you see those things happen... You should know the time is very short at that point. It's not going to be, there won't be any more delay. Jesus said it's going to be so terrible in those days that if those days had not been cut short, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be shortened. I would go beyond that. For the sake of the the elect, those days are counted. They're numbered. And the number's been revealed to us. We'll get to that in future. So that's like... Wow, suspense. Come next week or two weeks. I don't know when I'm going to talk about the 1260 days, but it's coming. He's numbered those days. And why? Because it will be so horrible to go through that time that we'll need to know how many days there are. But we who aren't living through them, we don't need to know to that level. But anyway, when you see these things, you'll know there'll be no more delay. Look at verse 7. But in the days when the seventh angel is about to sound his trumpet. Do you see that? It's very clearly identified. In those days when the seventh trumpet is about to sound. Then the mystery of God will be accomplished. Just as he announced to his servants the prophets. 
Now, the mystery of God means those things that are part of God's overall redemptive plan down to some detailed levels that have not yet been told to us. That's what mystery means. He's saying the mystery of God then will be accomplished in those days. I'm going to just choose one of the mystery passages to tell you what I think it ultimately means. It's Ephesians chapter 1, verse 9 and 10. It says, And he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he put into effect, which he purposed in Christ, to be put into effect, listen, when the times will have reached their fulfillment, that's the end of the world, to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. That's the mystery. That's the big picture. He's going to destroy all evil or convert it and bring together into one head everything he's made so that there's a harmony together under Christ, under God, so that we are all worshiping, giving glory to God. And the kind of problems we're seeing in our country, even in our city now, it'll be gone. We will be perfectly one. The mystery will be accomplished when the uh, seventh trumpet sounds. The time will be very short for that. That's what he's saying. And so, the book of Revelation represents the final stage of prophetic unfolding of the mysterious plan of God in writing ahead of time. In the days of the seventh trumpet, the end of all the messages ever given through the Old Testament, New Testament prophets, and the apostles will be accomplished, will be fulfilled. The day of the Lord will have come at last. And to that end, the angel has come to recommission the Apostle John to finish his writing, the rest of the book of Revelation. So look at verses 8 through 11, beginning at verse 8. Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me once more. Go, take the scroll that lies open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. Now the giving of the scroll and the resultant proclamation of its message to the nations of the earth was the whole reason the mighty angel came down to begin with, to give the scroll. Remember, Daniel was absolutely overwhelmed by the vision of the angel he saw. John doesn't seem to be laid out like Daniel was. He's able to function. And so he's commanded, he has to be commanded, okay, move now, go out and go get the scroll. So John went in verse 9, so I went to the angel and asked him to give me the little scroll. But the angel told him something about the scroll and the effect it would have on him. And not just him, but every faithful believer who reads the book of Revelation, who reads the things that that God commanded John to write. Look at verse 9 and 10. He said to me, take it and eat it. It will turn your stomach sour, but in your mouth it will be as sweet as honey. I took the little scroll from the angel's hand and ate it. It tasted as sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach turned sour. So the angel told John to eat the scroll. I was talking to my kids this morning. We read through this thing. It's like, like, did he like literally eat the scroll? Was it like a literal eating? It's like, I don't know. What do you think? Do you think he literally went and ate something and chewed it and swallowed it? I don't really know. But it's a visionary language. And as he eats it, it tastes sweet in his mouth. Now, the eating of the word of God or the eating of the prophecy of God is well known. It happens a number of times in the Old Testament. Clearest is Ezekiel 3. And there God said to Ezekiel, Son of man, eat what is before you. Eat this scroll and then go and speak to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth and he gave me the scroll to eat. Then he said to me, Son of man, eat the scroll I am giving you and fill your stomach with it. So I ate it and it tasted as sweet as honey in my mouth. He then said to me, Son of man, go now to the house of Israel and speak my words to them. Ezekiel 3. 
But what's interesting, in that chapter, he's told to go only to the Jews, and he's told they're not going to listen to him. But if he did go to the rest of the world, they would listen to him. Interesting. Now, the eating of the scroll represents the total absorption of the Word of God into your inner being. Chewing, swallowing, digesting it. It just comes into, inside you and fills you. And so John's supposed to take this message in his mouth, chew it up, taste it, and then digest it and proclaim it. Now, the sweetness of the Word of God is established in so many places, like Psalm 19. God's words, His law is like honey, sweeter than honey from the comb, it says. Beautiful. But John's experience would be a mixed one. Not just sweet in the mouth, but bitter, like it gave him a stomach ache, like he wanted to vomit. Very sour stomach. What does this represent? Well, it represents that the message of the book of Revelation is a mixed one for us. It's actually difficult to hear. Now, I don't know about the sequencing, first sweet, then bitter. Let me just tell you what I think the bitterness is. The fact is that many people are going to die under the wrath of God, not as believers in Christ. And that this beautiful world that God made is going to be destroyed, completely destroyed as by fire. That's difficult to hear. And the actual process of going through that is going to be grievous. It's going to be hard to watch people dying unrepentant under the wrath of God. It's going to be difficult. But there is a sweetness that comes from knowing that God's purpose ultimately is good. And that in the end, Revelation 21, 22, there will be a radiant church and a new world and a glorious experience with God. And that's very sweet. But now we've got some bitterness to go through, not different than Jesus weeping over Jerusalem, weeping over Jerusalem. Or the apostle Paul saying, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart for the Jews who do not believe in Jesus. So it's bitter and sweet. And then John is recommissioned to preach to the nations in verse 11. Then I was told you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. John's eating of the scroll results in his writing of a prophetic message that the entire world must hear. And you must prophesy. It's absolutely necessary for you to write down this message for the world. John is called by God and he has no choice. Now it's a little unclear in the Greek what he's saying here. You must prophesy either about many nations, like in the ESV, or against many nations, or perhaps before many nations, like in the KJV. There's different ways. I think it's all three. He's going to preach about nations in front of them and against them. And here we have, we have often these descriptions of the nations, like peoples, nations, and languages. But here we also have kings. So people from all over the world need to hear John's message. But also especially kings. Now, kings are going to factor in later in the book of Revelation. They will organize their power and their regime under Antichrist. And they'll all gather, the kings of the earth will gather at the battle of Armageddon and fight against the people of God, triggering the second coming of Christ. We'll get to that in Revelation 17, God willing. But the kings of the earth need to hear this. But before those days even come, there will be some kings that will hear and heed the message of the word of God and repent. Isaiah 40 says, He brings princes to naught and reduces the rulers of this world to nothing. No sooner are they planted, no sooner are they sown, no sooner do they take root in the ground than he blows on them and they wither and a whirlwind sweeps them away like chaff. But some kings, even in our day, some rulers, some movers and shakers will actually hear the gospel and repent and believe. 
as it says in Isaiah 52, 15, so will he, Jesus, sprinkle many nations with his atoning blood and kings will shut their mouths because of him. For what they were not told, they will see and what they have not heard, they will understand. Well, that's Revelation 10. What applications can we take from this incredible chapter? Well, this chapter is awesome, but it's merely an interlude. It's a break. The action from Revelation 8 and 9 is so overwhelming that we need to step back as we're reading through the book of Revelation. We've seen the destruction in Revelation 8 of planet Earth at levels we can scarcely imagine. And we've seen the destruction of the human race up to one-third of the population of the Earth at levels that have never happened before in human history. And these terrors are so overwhelming that we, the readers, need an interlude, a break to catch our breaths. But the vision's not merely a throwaway. It's not just an intermission. He's saying, I have more to say to you. I have more things to tell you. And you need to listen to the rest. And it's going to be sweet ultimately for you, but there's also some bitter aspects. It also shows the grace of God in unrolling the scroll of time in his own way at his own pace. In a few minutes, we're going to be done. And you're going to walk out. And you're going to look out. And the world will look just like it always does. And you'll see the sun shining. And you'll feel, feel perhaps the breeze on your face. You'll see birds flying. And you'll see the green grass and the green trees. And they'll be normal. And you'll feel the heat of an August Sunday afternoon. And you'll be tempted to think, where is all this stuff that we've been reading about in the book of Revelation? Everything just goes on like it always has. And whether you think that or not, I can guarantee you non-Christians are definitely thinking those thoughts. If they knew anything about these things, they would reject them out of hand and think it's ridiculous. We need to read the words of the unsealed scroll, the word of God, about what's coming, what's, what the future is coming. We need to take it to heart. We need to, like, eat it and bring it into ourselves and say, you know, I actually really believe that everything I see with my eyes is temporary and will someday be destroyed by the wrath of God. I believe that. And I think that actually needs to affect the way that I live. 2 Peter chapter 3 always gives us the two great applications for this kind of meditation. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? Well, first, you ought to live holy and godly lives. And secondly, you should look forward to the day of God and speed its coming by the proclamation of the gospel. Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation. He is patient with us, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance, Peter tells us. So we are entrusted with the ministry of reconciliation. This is far bigger than a topic like racism. It has to do with the eternal judgment of people on judgment day, in which the outcome will be heaven or hell. Far weightier than that issue, however weighty racism is. This is bigger than that. We are responsible to be holy ourselves and to preach the gospel. And I would urge you parents, walk through this with your kids. Teach them eschatology. Teach them end time teaching. Teach them about angels. Teach them about what God says is coming so that they can be aware and live accordingly. Understand angels. Understand how much they fight to protect us. Don't worship them, but just be grateful for them. Be grateful for the ministry that they carry on. Imitate their obedience so that your, uh, God's will will be carried out in your life as it is by the angels in heaven. And then finally, just absorb, take in the word of God. 
I would urge you to go ahead and read the next chapter. God willing, I'm going to preach on Revelation 11 about the two witnesses. Come ready to, uh, to debate me about what you think the two witnesses are and who you think they are. But in any case, take in the word of God. Eat it, swallow it. Let it affect the way you live your life. Close with me in prayer. Lord, we thank you for the word of God. We thank you for the way it teaches us so many things. And Father, we pray that you would strengthen each one of us to welcome its message, to absorb it into ourselves and to heed it. Oh God, give us courage for the facing of this hour. Help us to be willing to stand strong against evil, against darkness, and to speak the truth, but to do it in love, hopeful that those that are holding destructive wrong views might be rescued and brought over into the kingdom of light. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.